Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your steadfast love, that it endures forever, that there's nothing that we can do that would cause it to cease. There's nothing that we can do that would cause you to turn away from us, and that even though we often turn away from you, your steadfast love endures forever, and we worship you for that. We thank you for the cornerstone, your son Jesus, who though he was rejected by men, was established by you to be the foundation upon which you would build your people. And I pray that we would be blessed this morning through your word. Lord, move in our hearts. Let this not be an academic exercise of just our minds engaging with your word, but Lord, draw our hearts deeper into your presence through the work of your Holy Spirit, we pray in your Son's precious name for his glory. Amen. Um, hopefully you're in Luke 20. We're, we're going to start in, uh, in verse 9. And so let me read this for us, okay? And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. <clears throat> a man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, this one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Um, I want to work our way through this text a little bit at a time, but I want to make sure that we sort of understand who all of the characters are uh, so that it's real clear. Uh, And once we've sort of established what Jesus is talking about, then I'm going to kind of focus in on a couple of Um, I think more significant, maybe a few of the deeper things going on here. So let me read 9 through 12 again so we can get kind of the main characters here. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. Okay, so the man who plants the vineyard is God. God the Father. Uh, To the audience listening to Jesus, this would have been very obvious to them, even if it's not necessarily obvious to us. Because... The Jewish leaders around Jesus, those people in particular, were studious uh, students. They, they, They studied the Old Testament. They knew the Old Testament. And if we go back to the Old Testament, it's important that we understand how well they knew the Old Testament. If we go back to Isaiah chapter 5, what we have there 
is a a story about God and his people Israel being a like a vineyard that he has planted. So the people listening to Jesus, they know as soon as he starts this parable that he is echoing Isaiah 5 and he's talking about Israel. The whole of Isaiah 5 is worth reading. I'm not going to do that. Uh, instead, let me just give you one verse that sort of proves my point here. Isaiah 5, 7, it says this, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So God is the man who owns the vineyard in the parable. And the tenants are the caretakers. They're the people of Israel who he has established to watch over his vineyard. It was their job, their privileged position as the people of God to bear fruit for God, for his glory among the nations. That's what he put them there to do. But tragically, rather than bear fruit for God, as we see in the parable, God's chosen people decided to work their position of privilege for their own benefit, for their own desires. And if you've read the Old Testament and even any portion, then you come to see pretty quickly that the nation of Israel becomes faithless. They become covenant breakers. They reject God's authority again and again. There's this ongoing cycle. I mean, by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, it's almost tiresome. You know where the story is going. And so, all throughout the Old Testament, what does God do? He sends his servants to his people. Uh, These are God's messengers, the the prophets like Isaiah, who we just uh, mentioned. And, and these messengers, these prophets, they come to the people of God and they plead with the people of God, remember why you are privileged. You are privileged to bear fruit for God, for his glory. And again and again, these prophets, these messengers are rejected and despised. Generally, they're disgraced and humiliated. Often they're beaten and sometimes they're even killed by God's own people. And if you remember back to Luke 11... We, uh, Jesus gives a series of woes to the religious leaders, and this is one of the ones that he says. Just listen as I read it. He says, Woe to you, that's the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, the religious leaders, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. And so you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For, you, or for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all of the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. Wow. So God picks a people for himself, not because they were deserving to be chosen, but because he's God, and like God, uh, because he is God, he declares things for his glory, like he says, Jacob I've loved, Esau I hated, and so for God's own good pleasure, he chooses the nation of Israel to glorify himself through these people, that the nations might see that he is God and praise his name. But his chosen people refuse to bear fruit for his glory. And instead they become greedy, they become proud. God sends his prophets to correct them, to tenderly and kindly steer them back on course. And they despise and mistreat those prophets. And so what's amazing here is Jesus in this parable gives a summary of the history of the nation of Israel, a summary of the Old Testament in 
you know, a few sentences, a thousand pages of the Old Testament summarized here. Maybe you're like, well, good, I don't have to read it anymore then. No, 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 I don't encourage you that direction. But it's amazing what he does. He sums up the story that quickly. But what it is is a very harsh interpretation of the Old Testament, isn't it? And yet it doesn't stop there. If we continue on, after beating the messengers, the prophets, the story takes a turn for the worse, if you believe it. Look at verses 13 through 15. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Here Jesus is prophesying about his own death. He's he's telling the crowds around him what is going to take place within just a matter of days in the very near future. Uh, Since God couldn't get the attention of his chosen people through authorized proclaimers of his word, the prophets, speaking on the authority of God, he does something even more incredible. He sends his very own son to reason with these wicked tenants to remind them of their purpose and whose vineyard it is that they are occupying. And so Jesus comes to his own people. And in the Gospel of John, John tells us, he came to his people and his own people did not recognize him. They did not receive him as the heir of the property. Instead, they plot to kill him, thinking that by killing him, they can keep the vineyard for themselves if he's no longer in the picture. What's really amazing about this um, Part of the story here, I was sitting with uh, our men's Bible study on Tuesday morning, and it came up, do, do you think that the religious leaders knew what they were doing? And I think what's really incredible about this particular passage is it's, it says that they did. Uh, in the parable, they recognize the heir when they see him. Did you notice that in verse 14? They know it's the heir as soon as they see him. And this is an incredibly damning indictment of these evil men. Jesus is saying that the religious leaders standing around him right now cannot plead ignorance. Rather, they are fully aware that Jesus is the heir. And they're going to kill him knowing full well what they're doing. Look, look a little bit past our reading to verse 19. It says, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. They understand the implications. And and what's amazing is here's an, an incredible opportunity for them to change the outcome of the story, to see themselves in what Jesus is saying, to repent, to hear the heir of the vineyard speak, and to be convicted, to surrender to him what is rightfully his. To avoid the tragedy of the conclusion of the story, which is their own destruction. And yet instead, as soon as the words have finished rolling off the tongue of Jesus, they turn to go and plot his demise, his death. Wow! These are indeed some wicked, wicked people. But you know what? That's really nothing new, unfortunately. This is how it was from the moment Israel left Egypt. I said that this is just a cycle that repeats itself. God, God's people cry out to him, save us from slavery. He answers the cry. He leads them out of Egypt. And immediately they begin grumbling and complaining against God. 
Way back in 2 Chronicles 36, this is generations later, we find it reiterated again, a similar statement that helps us see that this is just par for the course. It's the way things always were between God and his beloved people. It says this, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to his people by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. So God's wrath is stirred against these people, and now we see the consequences. Look at verses 15 through 17 here. Let me go back just a little bit to 14. When the tenants saw the heir, they said to themselves, This is the heir, let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. Now, because the Bible is probably at least somewhat familiar to most of us in the room, I think it's difficult to, for us to appreciate the intensity of this prophecy, of these words, how outrageous what it is what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus says here would have been literally impossible in the minds of those who are listening to him say these things. Upon hearing that Jesus says the owner of the vineyard will come and destroy the wicked tenants and give the vineyard to others, the people respond with a phrase that normally we find in the writings of Paul, especially in Romans. They say, surely not. Or as Paul likes to put it, by no means. May it never be the case. Surely the owner of the vineyard would never do such a thing, they exclaim. Okay, but hang on a second. Why are they protesting? Why are they upset? This action is perfectly just, is it not? It makes perfect sense in light of the situation. I know nobody reads the paper anymore, but imagine that you open up the local paper, okay? And in there is a story uh, about a a tenant. There's quite a few renters in Maricopa, right? And, And here's a person renting a house, and they treat the house miserably. They, they don't take very good care of it. And so the owner of the house sends his uh, agent to go and check in on the house. And the owner or the, the renter within the house beats the agent up and throws him into the curb, right? And so the owner of the house then, you know, decides, well, I'll send my own son to check in on things. And they kill the son, okay? You're reading this story in the newspaper. Wouldn't you expect that the story would end with, with, with justice, that the owner of the home would have the tenant evicted for the behavior, that the owner of the home would press charges, would have the, the renter jailed for this at the very least, wouldn't we expect that justice would come down hard on the renter of this house for their disrespect, for their vile actions? Nobody reading the paper would be shocked to find at the end of this story that the homeowner responded to these kinds of inappropriate behaviors with some kind of seeking for justice. So why in the world then is the crowd listening to Jesus so shocked that they respond with this phrase, surely not, surely God, surely the owner of the vineyard would never do such a thing to these tenants. Why do they respond like that? 
Well, again, I think it's because they have a very good grasp on the Old Testament. They understand again and again throughout the Old Testament, in this cycle as it's going on, God continually says to his people, I will never forsake you. I will always keep my promises to you. I will be faithful. I will have steadfast love. You will be my people forever. It's a promise that goes back thousands of years. It goes back to Genesis 17, where God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So this is why the crowd can't believe it. They're, they're, they're thinking, well, all the way back to Abraham, God has kept his promises to let us stay in his vineyard. And it goes against the very nature of God to go back on his promises. He can't do that. And to them, it appears as if Jesus, in saying these things, is saying that God will renege on the promises that he has made to his people roughly 2,000 years ago and has reaffirmed throughout every generation of the people of Israel. That's what it seems to them. God cannot break his promises. And this is part of what has made these people, I think, so arrogant. Because while they break their end of the bargain, while they continually violate God's commands and break their covenant promises with God, they know that God cannot break his promises. In, in sort of modern Christian terms, we call this cheap grace. You know, the, the temptation that you may sometimes feel where it's like, well, I know that God will forgive me, so it's, it's, you know, it's okay. I'll just go do this thing that I know I shouldn't do, and then later I'll come back and say, God, I'm sorry I did it, right? We call that cheap grace. They knew that because God was faithful, their faithlessness had little consequence in their relationship with God. They know that God cannot break his promises. Have you ever had somebody say, uh, you know, is there anything that God cannot do? Well, yes, there are some things that God cannot do. God cannot violate his nature, so he cannot sin. He cannot do evil. He cannot break the word that he has promised on his own name. And so the crowd, you have to understand this, the crowds are shocked to hear Jesus talk about the consequences of this situation. To hear Jesus say that God is going to take the vineyard away from his people, that seems to them to be a broken promise. But God does not break his promise. The crowds misunderstand. And this is important. I hope that we can avoid this misunderstanding this morning. The key to understanding this parable, I think, is to understand that although the tenants live in the vineyard, it is not their vineyard. It never belonged to them. It's a simple matter of fact that renters are not owners. Tenants are not heirs. And Jesus tells us who the vineyard actually belongs to. It belongs to the heir. It belongs to the son. It is his by right. It has always belonged to him, and it will always belong to him. It stays in the family. It is family-owned property. And even though the wicked tenants kill the heir to the vineyard, the rightful owner, God the Father has the power to raise him from the dead so that the vineyard still belongs to him forever. 
Even after the tenants kill him, it continues to belong to him. Listen, here's what I'm getting at, okay? What I'm getting at is the promise that was made to Abraham back in Genesis 17, verse 7, was a promise made about Jesus and a promise made to Jesus. Paul says that very same thing in Galatians 3.16 where he talks about the seed of Abraham and he says it's Jesus. In other words, because Jesus is the heir and the vineyard belongs to him, Jesus is Israel. Jesus is Israel. And God can keep every one of his promises to Israel by raising his son from the dead, giving to him the keys of life and death, and turning over to him the vineyard that God has built and established for his own glory. So even if God evicts the wicked tenants from his property and leases it out to other people, he has not violated his promises because his son continues to be the heir of the property. It still belongs to the resurrected son. Like it says in 2 Corinthians, all of the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. All of the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. Because all of the promises of God throughout all of Scripture point us to Christ, God's Son. And verse 17 here in in Luke chapter 20 helps us understand this is not an audible This is not like a a change of plans. This is not a last-minute call that is different from what God intended from the beginning. This is not God's sort of like unexpected response to a wayward people. When Jesus says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, what he is saying is that all along God has been building his temple, his people, upon the foundation stone of Jesus. That's the way it's always been. And in their arrogance, unfortunately, these people overestimated their position in God's plans. When they should have known all along, their position was tenuous. Go back to Deuteronomy, and we see blessings and curses. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. They should have known that their position was tenuous because they are not flesh and blood heirs. They are tenants. If you go to the psalm that Jesus quoted here, Chrissy read it it for us, Psalm 118, what you find is that the whole theme of the psalm is that God is at work. God is at work. And although his people benefit, God is working for God's sake. What he does is for him. Uh, So you have the verse, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The very next verse in Psalm 118 is this. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So God always intended to build his people upon Jesus, the cornerstone, the true Israel. And it's a marvelous revelation for us to understand these things. Because what it does is show us that God does not break his promises. He fulfills all of them. We don't need to wonder like the crowd, how can God do such a thing and still be faithful to his name? Because he fulfills his promises to his heir, the son, Jesus. God seeks a people who will be faithful to his covenant. He lands on Israel. He chooses them, but they fail. They fail so hard, they even kill his own son. And so God finds one 
one faithful person within the people of Israel, Jesus, the Son of God, and Jesus alone keeps steadfast love for God. And through the faithfulness of Jesus, everyone who puts their trust in him becomes part of God's covenant people. Okay, all of that to say that although the crowd is shocked to hear Jesus say that God will back out on his contract with Israel, that's what they think he's saying. What Jesus means is that God will fulfill all of his covenant promises through his heir, Jesus, the Son of God. That's beautiful. The stone the people rejected, this is the very stone that God has chosen to lay as the foundation for his eternal temple, his everlasting people, all who love him and will be called by his name. I mean, this is truly astounding. Now, I admit, so I, I can even see it on some of your faces, this may be somewhat different than what you have heard in the past. And if that's the case, I would just love to talk about it more after the service. If you will um, give me that opportunity, come up and let's, let's chat about it. But let's move on because there's more. Uh, I want to finish the passage from Luke. There's, there's one more very important idea that I want to draw out here, okay? In essence, Jesus gives his audience a choice regarding how they receive this information. He claims there are two potential outcomes now that you know this, to hearing that Jesus is the cornerstone, that all of God's plans have been pointing to him. There's two potential outcomes. Read verse 18. It says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is that stone. And as I read this carefully this week, I came to the conclusion that I think Jesus has to be describing two different groups of people here. There's an and there, but I think I actually like but better. There are those that fall on the cornerstone and are broken to pieces. And there are those upon whom that cornerstone falls and they are crushed. One translation I looked at said, turned to dust. Let's look at both of these. Let me start with the simpler one, the crushed one. Those who reject Jesus, the cornerstone, will be crushed by the weight of his holiness. This makes me think back to Luke chapter 13. I don't know if you remember this, but the crowds are talking to Jesus and they say, what about all these people who were crushed by this tower of Siloam when it fell on them? And regarding that story, Jesus says, you know what? Those people, they weren't particularly bad. That wasn't God smiting them for their evil behavior. Rather, Jesus says that unless you repent, you also will find an end similar. You likewise will perish, is what he says. You likewise will be crushed. And it's an interesting scene in light of what he says here about the cornerstone crushing those upon whom it falls. Forgive me, I don't mean to make it more complicated than it has to be, so let me state it very in the simplest of terms I can. Jesus says, anyone who rejects him as God's only source for salvation is doomed to be crushed under the very righteousness of the Son of God whom they reject. In other words, to reject Jesus is to accept the crushing burden of his perfect holiness as a standard to which you think you can achieve apart from him. Therefore, you will be judged by God on your own merits 
according to the standard of Christ's perfect holiness. That is a crushing burden for you to attempt to carry on your own. And since you cannot possibly stand up under that weight, you will be ground to dust under the feet of Jesus as the sheer weight of his holiness decimates you in your sin. And man, I pray if there's anyone in this room with an unrepentant heart, anyone in this room who thinks you on your own can stand up under the crushing righteousness, the crushing perfection, the crushing holiness of Jesus, I pray that you would hear this morning and see with the eyes of your heart the depth of your depravity, your need for grace, that Jesus says you don't need to try and lift that weight yourself. You cannot stand under his holiness. Your only hope is to ask him for grace, to appeal to the steadfast love and mercy of God. And so I pray for you, if that's you, that the Holy Spirit may give you eyes to see your need, your deep, deep need for Jesus, that you would repent and turn to him for mercy. And the good news is he will show you kindness. There is no limit to his kindness. But you need to hear this. If this is you, you'll find the kindness of Jesus. He will give you mercy. You only need to humble yourself before him and see your need. But let's look at the other option here in verse 18, okay? Because if you read this carefully the first time, you may be thinking, okay, Grady, there's two options. Uh, Alternative two or option two is to be crushed by Jesus, but uh, option one doesn't really sound that much better either. Let me read it again. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So instead of being crushed under the stone, you can uh, take option two or the other option, which is to fall headlong onto the stone and you'll be broken to pieces. Is there a third option? Because I would take that one, right? No, there's no third option. So what does it mean? What does that mean? It means that you cannot come to Jesus unless you are broken. More specifically, you cannot come to Jesus until he breaks you. He will break you. Jesus is a hard stone. I mean, I know that we, we, we love to talk about the love of Jesus, and we need to do that. We should, right? I just told you, he's kind. He's merciful. He loves you. But Jesus is a hard stone, and he must be because he has to out-hardness the hardness of the human heart. Jesus is like an anvil. And those who come to him should expect to place their heart upon the anvil that is Christ Jesus so that he might break it to pieces in order that we might see our sin and understand our desperate need for him. That's the essence of brokenness is to understand your neediness. To be broken is to be made painfully aware of your desperate need for Jesus. And so when God breaks us upon the stone of Jesus, what he does is he opens our eyes to see our sin and our need for grace. And there's no coming to Christ apart from that. Without that, we cannot come to Jesus. 
John Bunyan, uh, you probably know Pilgrim's Progress. He's got other works in his book, The Acceptable Sacrifice. He says that man must be broken by God because in his natural state, man has a set of qualities that make it impossible for him to accept God otherwise. And because man is so entrenched in these things, he's blind to his need for Christ. He is unbroken in his hard-heartedness. These are the things that he lists. Listen. Man is dead. A fool who loves folly, proud and stubborn, self-willed and self-centered, unbelieving, full of darkness and evil imaginations, bent toward vanity, fearless of God who should fill his heart with awe, a lover of what is false, a lover of sin, a wild and rebellious creature, and a hater of God and his kingdom. Wow. In our unbroken state, what wretched people we are. We're no better than the tenants of this vineyard, filled with murderous greed in their hearts to try and take what does not belong to them. And what remedy could there possibly be for us in that state? Jesus says there is only one remedy, and that is for our natural selves to be dashed to pieces upon the rock, the cornerstone of Christ. And only he is hard enough, enduring enough, to shatter the idols and the idolatrous hearts of men to set us free, to give us life, to break us. So do you understand this? Do you understand that God in his kindness breaks his children to set them free from bondage to sin and death? In his kindness... He, calls, or he causes us to fall headlong onto Christ that we might be broken to pieces. I mean, think about Job, if you've ever read that book. The intense suffering of Job that he experienced was actually the mercy of God tenderizing the heart of Job so that Job might see with the, soul, with the eyes of his soul the beautiful face of God. And what love our God has for us that he would put us through the process of breaking us on the anvil of Christ. But I have to wonder, have you been broken? I mean, do you know what I'm talking about? I wonder, would you say that you've experienced the kindness and mercy of God as he chiseled away at your stony heart? in spite of how painful and hard that may have been. I wonder if you've fallen headlong over Christ, the cornerstone, so that you too have been broken to pieces, so that Christ might build you up into a new creation for his glory. See, brokenness makes us aware of sin. It makes us aware of God's holiness and how far apart from him we are by nature. It makes us desperately aware of our need for grace, for him to do something to cross the chasm between him and us. It makes us desperately aware of our need for a Savior, our need for God. And so I pray this prayer over you, again, with much fear and trembling, being fully aware of the consequences, the pain, the affliction that might come with it. I pray that God, in his love for you, would break you. 
That he would make you ever more aware of the depth of your sins so that you would be ever more aware of the limitless grace that he has. Of the depth of his love that he has for a creature such as you, such as I. That he would show you your desperate need for him so that you would cling to Jesus with every fiber of your being. That you would know more and more the depth of his mercy and love for you. And as he puts you through that process, as painful as it may be, I've explained it to people as I've gone through that at points in my life that it's like, it's like being like a potato peeler to my skin. It's just, or to my soul, my very soul. But as he puts you through that process, don't be discouraged, don't be dismayed. Because here's the really beautiful thing about the stone that the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. One of the things that I find that's beautiful about Jesus. Do you understand that he too was broken? Jesus was broken. He did not need to be broken. The reason you need to be broken is because of sin. But Jesus was without sin. He had no need for God to break him in order to refine him or save him or sanctify him. But Jesus actually chose brokenness. For your sake, so that God could then break you. So that as God breaks you, you would have in God Himself an advocate, one who knows what it's like to go through that process, one who can intercede for you before God on your behalf. Man, see, Jesus didn't just take our humanity upon himself so that he would die. He took our humanity upon himself so that we might also live. He shared our brokenness so that we could share with him his holiness. And so God in his mercy broke Christ, but he didn't do it for Christ's sake. He did it for your sake. Wow. So that God in his mercy then might bind up the brokenhearted to give them a beautiful inheritance in Christ the Son. We're going to do communion now together. The way that we're going to do that this morning is through intinction. What that means is that uh, around the room there's a couple places where there are some crackers and some juice. Uh, our worship team is, is going to come forward and they're going to lead us in some uh, worship through song. And as you feel led or prepared, you're welcome to make your way to one of those tables to grab one of the crackers, just dip it in the juice right there, and you can eat it right there as you stand. And my encouragement to you always is don't rush this process. I mean, here's an opportunity for you to sit and pray and praise God for what he's done or repent of sin cry out to him for his mercy, give him thanks and worship him. I mean, it's, it's not juice, it's the blood of Christ. It's not a cracker, it's the body of Christ. And so to just prepare you before I close in prayer, let me read something I came across this week. To us, broken things are despised as worthless. But God can take what has been broken and remake it into something better something that he can use for his glory. Broken things and broken people are the result of sin, yet God sent his own son who was without sin 
to be broken so that we might be healed. On the night before Jesus died, he broke the bread and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. He went all the way to Calvary to die so that we can live. His death has made it possible for broken, sinful humanity to be reconciled to God and to be healed. And without the broken body of Jesus, we could not be made whole. Let me pray. God, this plan is too marvelous for us to comprehend. It is your doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And we thank you for your son Jesus, who would choose to be broken, not out of necessity, like we must be broken, but out of kindness, so that in sharing in our brokenness, he might also give to us eternal life. Lord, let us not take these things lightly as we partake of the blood and body of Christ. Let our hearts be filled with worship, with gratitude, with humility, with joy and rejoicing that we have been given such a privileged place to be called children of God. We give you thanks. Amen.